If you have your Bibles, I've invited you to turn with me to Mark chapter 10 and verse 1. This is yet another passage that no pastor goes to looking to build his popularity or his platform. You would want to try and avoid this text if you could. Uh, It makes you wonder sometimes when you're preaching even texts like this if anybody's listening. Reminds me of the, the joke I heard. Brother Mark, you may have heard this one before. Uh, a preacher and a doctor and a lawyer, they all went hunting together. And they were uh, looking for some deer, and all of a sudden there was a beautiful buck. And all three of them pulled their rifles, and they shot at the same time. And the buck went down. So they were kind of debating, you know, like, who actually shot this deer? And so they went around, and the doctor is examining the deer. And he says, definitively, I know it was the pastor who shot this buck. And the lawyer starts arguing. He's like, how can you possibly know? And he says, well, it's easy because it went in one ear and out the other. The bullet did. Those bullets, those preacher bullets. Do you have any of those bullets, Brother Mark, that have gone in one ear and out the other? Well, I beg of you, I beg you, please, do not tune the preacher out today. Not because I'm anything special but because these are the words of life given to us by God for our benefit. My prayer is that the Holy Spirit would give us ears to hear today. So let's stand in honor of the reading of God's word from Mark chapter 10. He, that is Jesus, set out from there and went to the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Then crowds converged on him again. And as was his custom, he taught them again. Some Pharisees came to test him, asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He replied to them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses permitted us to write divorce papers and send her away. But Jesus told them, He wrote this command for you because of the hardness of your hearts. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. When they were in the house again, the disciples questioned him about this matter. He said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. Also, if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. This is the word of the Lord. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Thank you for standing in honor of it. You may be seated. We often lament, and rightly so, that divorce is commonplace in our society. We will talk at times of the ease of no-fault divorce, and from time to time we will even hear of trivial reasons why marriages don't last. We feel that amongst the so-called elites or the cultural elites of society, divorce is almost celebrated, and any who would oppose it are to be silenced or brushed aside. But as we'll note as we study Mark chapter 10 today, That is almost exactly the cultural setting into which Jesus spoke these straightforward words that reaffirm the beauty 
of the intentions of the God-ordained institution of marriage. My approach today to this text is going to be twofold. It's very simple. I want to look at what happened. What happened 2,000 years ago? And then consider what should we do in light of what happened as we find this account in Mark's gospel. So first on your outlines today, what happened? The scenery, it shifts from Capernaum to the region of Judea and the Transjordan. And this is important. It is of note to note this change of scenery because Jesus is in now a more hostile territory as he's getting closer to Jerusalem. It didn't take long for his opponents to come after him. So that's the first thing in your outline. The Pharisees, they got after Jesus. The Pharisees, we are told in verse 2, came with a purpose to test Jesus with this question of divorce. And if you think about it, it really was quite the perfect topic to attempt to trap Jesus with when you stop and really consider all that is going on. You see, there was a celebrity divorce that had taken place in this region that had caused quite the kerfuffle. You might remember Herod Antipas is the tetrarch in the region of Judea. And Matthew's gospel tells us that when John the Baptist opposed his marriage to the recently divorced Herodias, who had ditched his half-brother Herod Philip for him, you'll recall things did not end well for my good man, JTB. We read in chapter 14 of Matthew's gospel in verse 3, Herod had seized John, bound him, put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, it's not lawful for you to have her. And of course, uh, the end was not very good. So the idea was, if you could get Jesus to say uh, divorce and remarriage were not permissible, that message would work its way up to Herod and the Pharisees could hope that the same fate would befall Jesus as had befell John the Baptist. So as loaded as the question is today in our time, I praise God that the worst I may get after preaching a message like this is your disdain and not decapitation. At least I hope. But anyway, there was more to their trap than merely political hot water. This was not just a politically fraught question. It was a theologically fraught question. There was a lot of debate that was going on in Judaism about the meaning of Deuteronomy chapter 24 and verse 1, which says, If a man marries a woman, but she becomes displeasing to him um, because he finds, here's a phrase to take note of, something indecent about her. He may write her a divorce certificate, hand it to her, and send her away from his house. And so there was the theological debate. What does the phrase, something objectionable, something indecent about her mean? There were two schools of thought on this. The school of Shammai interpreted the expression conservatively. And they permitted divorce only in the case of sexual unchastity by the wife. Something indecent was something indecent and immoral, adultery. However, the rabbinic school of Hillel, the other side of this theological debate, they interpreted this phrase more liberally and permitted divorce for things like, get this, burning her husband's breakfast in the morning. Or if the man found somebody more desirable to him than she was, someone more attractive, for any reason whatsoever. 
anything objectionable, as the verse said. This meant that if Jesus sided with that liberal school, which was the prevailing thought of the day, the Pharisees could say he's going against the law of Moses. And if he sided with the conservatives, it would have gone against public opinion, which rather liked the idea of divorce for any reason. And that's why I said at the outset of today's sermon that this is not much unlike the cultural setting into which Jesus spoke. It was a no-win situation. There was no way Jesus could win, they thought, in this political and theological trap, no matter how he answered the Pharisees. But as R.C. Sproul points out, Jesus, of course, was never very concerned about public opinion or about appeasing theologians or politicians. And similarly, my prayer is that it may always be said of those who serve from behind this pulpit what the Apostle Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 1 and verse 10. Am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. So hopefully you now have a greater appreciation of the context into which Jesus spoke. These very bold affirmations of the permanency of marriage. But the next thing that we see in response to their gotcha question is Jesus replies with his own question. It's not a trap. It's designed to bring clarity. I want us to take note of it carefully in verse 3. He replied to them, what did Moses command you? Not, are there any good suggestions in the Pentateuch about this? Not, what do your rabbis say about this? Very simply, what did Moses command you in Scripture? Jesus wants to find out if the Pharisees are able to see the difference between what Moses commanded and what God had permitted. Unfortunately, the Pharisees, secondly, got away from Jesus' question. They got away from his question. Again, he asked, what did Moses command? But look at verse 4 and see their reply. They say, Moses permitted us to write divorce papers and send her away. Jesus asked about a command, and all they can come up with is a place where Moses gave them permission. The thing is, the permission was not God's intent from the beginning for marriage. It was damage control. You see, God got around human hard-heartedness. God got around human hard-heartedness. This was God's way around the hard hearts of the Jewish people. He was working around them. In verse 5, we are told, Jesus said to them, He wrote this command for you because of the hardness of your hearts. That word hardness of hearts is sclerocardia. It's referring not to necessarily hard-heartedness toward one another, though we know that occurs often in dissolving marriages. But more, more often than not, most of the time when this phrase occurs in Scripture, this word, it refers to hard-heartedness toward God. Human hard-heartedness towards God's ways and God's will. In other words, broken marriages are a breach of God's standard for marriage. But we know that in this fallen world, marriages do break down. 
divorces do happen. And this text proves that even the most idealistic upholder of the permanence of marriage, listen, Moses himself, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, found ways to deal with the tragic products of society gone wrong. But it doesn't mean that the ideal is unrealistic or should not be upheld. Quite to the contrary, as R.T. France put it, quote, modern society shows us what can happen when a provision for damage limitation comes to be regarded as a right or a norm. That's a profound statement. Modern society shows us what can happen when a provision for damage limitation comes to be regarded as a right or even as a norm. Jesus teaches that the provisions uh, and Moses' permissions had done nothing to God's standard, the ideal design that God had intended. Rather, Jesus got back to the way things were in the beginning. Jesus got back to the beginning, the way things were, as he looked at the foundations of marriage as a God-ordained human institution. Verse 6, we read, But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. There is so much that we could talk about in just those few verses, but I want to touch briefly first on verse 6 and the beginning of verse 7. When Jesus talks about marriage, did you notice the first thing he talks about is that God created humans with gender? God made humans male and female. And then he says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, and the two will become one flesh. For what reason? Because they're made to go together. They are complementary. One is male, one is female. They're like pieces of a puzzle designed by God in such a way that when they are joined together in marriage, in the consummation of that marriage, they are no longer two, but one flesh. We have a student who's a member of our church that recently took a sociology course here at uh, CSM where I'm certain there were, among the discussions of other secular ideologies, discussions about the questions of gender identity or gender nonconformity or gender fluidity and the like. And I want you to hear me. With all the confusion that our world has over the idea of gender, we cannot and must not be surprised that it results in the dissolution of marriage. And it kind of begs the question, which came first, the chicken or the egg? Because marriage has been under attack in our society for a very long time. And when marriage is de-emphasized and the one flesh permanence aspect of it is de-emphasized and sexual activity becomes something disassociated from the marriage covenant, then we should not be surprised when that works its way up the ontological chart to an even more foundational reality. 
Like a cancer that grows and invades even more vital organs of the body, this society's disregard for marriage has diseased its view of the even more basic reality of what it means to be male or female. It seems like you can't go to the doctor Watch Jeopardy with your children, buy a plane ticket, or even go to a public elementary school anymore without having the question of gender assailed from every side. Friends, we need to, we must teach our children, affirm in them early and often, hear me very clearly, God made us male and female from the beginning of creation. God made us, male and female. If you need help talking with your older preteen children about this, I recommend the little book we have in our book nook called Gender by my friend Brian Seagraves. And if your kids are very little, check out the song Just the Way God Wanted Us to Be. That's a song by Sovereign Grace Music called Just the Way God Wanted Us to Be. And play that in your car as you drive your kids around. Male female, gendered. And for this reason, a man leaves his father and mother and is united to a spouse. And that design is intended until death doth them part. You see, the male and the female didn't create the one flesh union. Quite to the contrary, it was God that joined them together. From the beginning, marriage has been about God-ordained a single indivisible unit, not two separate beings in some sort of convenient contract that can be broken. Mark Strauss rightly defines marriage as a sacred covenant between God, a husband, and a wife, whereby the man and woman commit themselves to a lifelong one flesh union, to love one another, to sacrifice themselves for the good of the other, and to work constantly toward reconciliation. The intention of God His design from the beginning is one man and one woman for one lifetime. Now, if we find that to be a tough pill to swallow in light of society's understanding of marriage, we're in good company because so did the disciples. They pulled Jesus aside. Matthew's account in the gospel of Matthew, we see that they're kind of in a state of shock utter disbelief. They say in Matthew 19, 10, if the relationship of a man with his wife is like this, it's better not to marry. They were stunned. Some of you are stunned today. That is, unless I'm out here shooting preacher bullets and they're going in one ear and out the other. But if you're actually hearing me, I think you're probably stunned because we often spend way more time hearing and meditating on what the world says and thinks. We are surrounded by this constantly instead of hearing what the Lord of the universe has to say on this topic. It can be as simple as common phrases that we hear tossed around like, I deserve to be happy. Or even the lie we tell ourselves, I know he or she will be happier with somebody else. It can go to inner thoughts like, I feel like all he thinks about is sex to 
inner thoughts like, she's just not the same person that I married. Friends, the list goes on and on. And the cultural anti-marriage propaganda that we hear is everywhere. It can come packaged in any variety of delivery methods, from the cutest of Hallmark movies and innocent, so-called innocent PG movies, to the worst of our entertainment culture. And let me tell you, on the smell, smell-o-meter, our entertainment culture is going towards pungent Okay, anywhere and everywhere, we are bombarded with this way of thinking and hearing everything but this. You're not going to turn on the TV or Netflix or the news or go to your unbelieving coworker or unbelieving family members and hear them championing the timeless vows that you took before God for better or worse in sickness and in health. Till death do us part. But apparently, what this text teaches is that society not championing marriage, well, unfortunately, that's nothing new. It's nothing new. We think it's new. We think we are dealing with something that has never been dealt before in the history of the world. It is not new. The disciples did a double take, they asked for clarity. And far from easing up, Jesus says plainly, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. Also, if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Now, quickly, before we go to the application, I want to make one note. Almost every commentary points out that verse 11 was revolutionary. Verse 11, he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. In the Jewish world, a man could be said to be committing adultery against the husband of another woman with whom he was having an affair. He could said to have been, uh, she could said to have been committing adultery against her own husband, but no one would have said that the husband was committing adultery against his wife. This was remarkably uh, new to them to hear Jesus say, you're committing adultery, infidelity against your wife, against her. It brought equality into the relationship right from the lips of Jesus. In other words, disciple dudes, when you get married, she's not your, she's your partner, excuse me. She's not your property that you can dispose of because she literally just burnt your biscuits in the morning. Okay, she's your partner, and you're committing adultery against her. William Lane says, This sharp intensifying of the concept of adultery had the effect of elevating the status of the wife to the same dignity as her husband and placed the husband under a greater obligation to fidelity. All right, now I said one quick note. Let me make it two, because this will come into play as we get to the application for today. For whatever reason, Mark does not include what many have called the exception clause that is found in Matthew's gospel. Now, what do we mean by that? In Matthew 5 and verse 32, Scripture records that Jesus says, But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for, there's the exception clause, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So we have to observe that while Jesus has given us a lot to think on on the topic, there's a great more to discuss 
about the concept of marriage and divorce and remarriage with that exception clause. And we'll kind of bring some of that in in application. Okay, so there's two quick notes. Now, I want to shift gears and consider in the time that remains, what should we do? What we need to do in light of what we've heard. Back the focus out just a little bit. And look at these 12 verses in the context of the last several chapters of Mark's gospel. If you've been here and you've been hearing us preach through Mark's gospel, I didn't just pick this text willy-nilly. This is the next text that we came to today. This section in Mark 8, 9, 10 and following is about the cost of discipleship. And whether it's been taking up our cross, getting radical about sin, or getting serious about marriage— None of this section has been easy, but it is God's word for us. So let me give us five things we can do in response to what we've heard from Mark chapter 10. First of all, let's get serious about illicit divorce. I qualified the word divorce with that adjective illicit because there appear to be a few allowable grounds for divorce in the Bible. That doesn't mean divorce has to happen for one of those reasons, but even Jesus, in his own words in Matthew 5, allows for the case uh, of divorce when there's sexual immorality. So the most commonly agreed upon biblical grounds for divorce are adultery and desertion. And let me say this, that's not 100% agreed upon, but it is very commonly agreed upon, and it is our stance as elders that in the, case of divorce, uh, in the case of adultery or desertion, there is biblical grounds for divorce. Adultery is what appears to be in view in that exception clause in Matthew's accounts of Jesus' words on divorce. We saw one in Matthew 5, the other is in Matthew 19. Now, desertion as a reason for divorce is arrived at from Paul's statement in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 15 where he says that if an unbelieving spouse leaves, the believing spouse is not bound to him or her. And that binding language, many point out, was a Jewish legal terminology for the right to remarry, no longer bound in the marriage covenant. So although in our text today, if you took it by itself, Jesus appeared to associate all remarriage with adultery, it's obvious when you take it in the greater context of all of Scripture He had not ruled out remarriage completely, but rather he emphasized that if divorce is not grounded in biblically valid reasons, subsequent remarriage is adulterous. One could even make the assertion that the type of divorce implied in this question was the kind of divorce, the frivolous divorce that was sanctioned by the Hillel school. And I'm not pulling that out of thin air If you look at Matthew's account of this same interaction, that is kind of the intention of the question. Matthew 19, verse 3, the Pharisees approached him to test him, and they asked this, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife on any grounds? Do you see it? Could he divorce her for any reason, including the burnt biscuit thing? We kind of like that rule. Can we keep that rule going? The burning breakfast that I found someone more attractive. Can he divorce her for any reason? And Jesus, of course, says no. And what he does is his statement has a lot more to do with this unwarranted and frivolous divorces. In other words, uh, 
whoever divorces for that kind of stuff and remarries is committing adultery against his wife. He's just really finding a workaround to get his way, and he is abandoning his bride that he's committed and covenanted to. Now, this is, of course, an argument from silence in Mark's gospel, but it is a reasonable consideration, I believe, in light of all of the scripture. We don't have to guess. There are scriptures that tell us there are allowable cases. But if we're honest, sometimes believers will only come to those texts in the Bible about divorce when they're looking for a way out of marriage instead of regularly meditating on them to hear what is clear, the resounding words of Christ that God intended from the beginning that marriage should be lifelong. So my prayer is that our hearts would not be hardened toward God and that we will take illicit divorce seriously amongst us. Secondly, when we ask what should we do, I'd say let's get wisdom. Let's get wisdom because every case will be different. There are never two cases of potential divorce that are the same. Our church's leadership will need wisdom to apply Christ-honoring principles to real-life situations. It's a lot easier to talk theoretically about divorce and remarriage than it is to counsel a couple on the brink of divorce and discern what is actually transpiring. But I take to heart the promise in James chapter 1. It says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. I pray God gives our elders and the entire congregation wisdom when it comes to walking through cases of divorce in the church. Will you pray? Will you pray for the elders? Will you pray for Bible fellowship teachers, for women's ministry leaders, for biblical counselors to have wisdom Danny Aiken, who's the president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, said that in addition to dozens of books and sermons he has read and heard on the subject, he has four, four inch thick files on the subject of divorce and remarriage. Now, it may not be 16 inches worth of papers on the topic, but our elders, before our retreat in November, read a 50 page, single space typed paper and divided up the reading of several books about this very topic. Listen, it is just too important to take lightly. But what we as elders know all too well is that every marriage relationship is too unique to pass it through some sort of grid or filter or rubric and come out with an answer, cookie cutter, at the end of it. One commentator rightly said, Church leaders must take care before they establish rules concerning divorce and remarriage since every situation is unique. What we can do, though, is strongly affirm the true significance of marriage, the tragedy of divorce, and the redemptive power of the gospel, all of them together. That is what's crystal clear. So hear me very clearly. If from time to time, divorce rears its ugly head in our church family, and in one case, it seems as though it turned out that the man was in the wrong for maybe deserting his wife, or in the other case, it seems like the woman sought divorce without biblical grounds, hear me clearly. Neither the elders nor this congregation 
are to be pro-man or pro-woman. We are to always be pro-marriage. What God has joined together, we never want to be a part of separating that union. But here's the thing. Sadly, in my limited experience as a senior pastor, but in consultation and discussion with other senior pastors with way more experience than I have, it seems like all too often, by the time elders or other church leaders are involved in a marriage turning south, things are too far gone. So very practically, and as straightforwardly as I know how to say it, as a church, one thing those involved in marriages can do is get help before it's too late. Get help before it's too late. I think there was an extra blank in there. Get extra help before it's too late. I don't know. We have to do this. You have to do it early. Date your spouse. Be an encourager to your spouse. Try not to do what the wife did in the old joke that you've probably heard about the one. Her husband wakes up in the morning and he says to his wife, Honey, I looked in the mirror and I'm feeling very old. My belly is growing. My eyes are getting crow's feet. I'm losing my hair. I just don't know what to do. I've got hair growing in places I don't want it to grow. Tell me one thing encouraging, sweetheart. And she looks at him and says, I can sure tell you one thing. Your eyesight is perfect. (laughs) All right, don't be that kind of encourager. Be a good encouragement to your spouse. Maybe go to a marriage conference. Visit with the pastors or another couple that can be a mentor to you, mentors to you as a couple. Go to counseling. Good biblical counseling. We can give you recommendations. We can even help you pay for biblical counseling, but we can't do. What we cannot do is put the toothpaste back in the tube when you unload it on your spouse by letting things boil and boil and boil until they bubbled over. That's something we can't do. Brothers, I'm speaking to you men in here, and I include myself as a recipient. Start thinking about the emotional needs of your wives. Live with them in an understanding way. Care for them. Talk to them. Listen to them. Date them. When the kids are gone, brother, it's just you and her. How are you investing in your relationship? Take the initiative. Be a spiritual leader. If you claim to follow Christ, obey his word and sacrifice for your wife as you would for your own body. Sisters, I'm speaking to you ladies in here, including my wife. Show love, respect, and submission to your husbands. Care for them. Try to understand us. Now, I know that's not too difficult because we're pretty simple-minded. But above all, be godly. Proverbs 31 kind of women with character and lasting, unfading, internal beauty. And one more, one more time to all of you who are married. Get help before it's too late. And even if you're not married, maybe you're considering marriage. Invite counsel Invite help before you're too invested. 
Oftentimes you see and you feel like it's too late when someone's engaged or very serious with somebody. Introduce your boyfriend or your girlfriend to your Christian parents. Introduce them to your pastors before you set a date. Get premarital counseling. I'm grateful for some young adults that sat with me via Zoom and got awesome time with one another and they're wise and they're growing in their faith Take it seriously and get help sooner than later. So we can take marriage and divorce seriously. We can get wisdom. We can get help before it's too late. But fourthly, let's get on our knees about marriages. Let's get on our knees about marriages. Our elders meet regularly to pray for you as church members. A part of our regular prayers as we pray for members is also for their marriages. I know there's been, this has been a lot of conversation, a lot of um, preaching today toward married individuals. But here is something that widows and single people and children and youth can do also. Pray for those who are married. You can pray for those who are married Maybe you're not married and you're considering marriage in your future. Pray for your future spouse if that's a possibility in your future. Ask God to intervene and help preserve and protect marriages from the attacks of Satan. Let's be fervent to pray for marriages here amongst our church family. And then lastly, and most importantly, let's get talking about Calvary. Let's get talking about Calvary. It is not far-fetched to say that Calvary is on Christ's mind as he is making his march toward Jerusalem in this greater context. So hear me clearly. Divorce is not the unpardonable sin. It is sin. It should be repented of. But there is really good news. When you come to Calvary, You come to a fountain of Christ's blood that is shed for sin, and it is a never-ending fountain of grace. Jesus told the woman at the well, who had had her fair share of divorces, in John 4 and 14, whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. In fact, the water I give him will become a well of water springing up in him for eternal Life. I've joked a little bit today about the preacher's bullet going in one ear and out the other. But you'll remember in John chapter 6, when Jesus' sayings were getting a little difficult for the crowds that were following, the disciples, some of the outer disciples in the crowd were walking away from Jesus as he was teaching. And Jesus turns to his inner core and says to them, will you leave now too? And what did Peter say? Where else can we go? Why? Because you have the words of eternal life. Christ's words for us are life, a fountain springing up. If you're here today and you've been divorced or you're considering divorce, maybe you're praying about possibly getting remarried, just know this. Every one of us, including myself, comes to God as a sinner in need of God's grace. So approach Calvary with prayer, repentance, and humility, and you will find 
Christ's forgiveness. The sins we've all committed are the sins that sent Jesus to the cross. But all who put their trust in Christ will be totally, completely forgiven. Our sins are covered by Christ's blood at Calvary. So whether it's adultery, divorce, neglecting your spouse, speaking harshly with your spouse, whatever the sin, let's be quick to speak of Calvary to one another. Because without the blood of Jesus, we would all be hopelessly lost. But in a picture of what it means for a husband to truly love his bride, Jesus gave his very life for the bride at Calvary on a hill outside of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. And praise God, he will never divorce us. He will never disown us. Christ will never desert us. To the contrary, all of history is pointing in one great crescendo to the greatest wedding feast of all time. Will you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we do come humbly before you today, all of us sinners in need of your grace. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would move powerfully amongst your people, Lord, quickening our hearts, opening our ears and minds, and softening our hearts to receive your words to us. They are the words of life. We know this to be true by your Holy Spirit. We ask for grace to receive. Lord, I pray for hurting hearts, for humbled souls who are looking to you for healing grace and the, the salve of your love and comfort. And I pray that you would provide it in abundant measure as we all consider the grace that you've bestowed upon us. Not one of us is deserving. No one of us is better. Lord, the Apostle Paul said he is the chief of sinners. Lord, the more we come to understand about what your word says, we understand it's not just the external it's also the attitude of our hearts, as we'll see when we study next week in the passage. Lord, you care far more about us than just our mere conformity to a checklist of external behaviors. And so, God, for the, uh, for the Pharisees amongst us, I pray that you would break down the pride of people who say, well, that's never happened to me. And allow us all to look in our hearts to see the depth of our own sin and the depth of our need of a Savior. 
Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the time we get to share in it. Father, I thank you for what remains, at least for now, the freedom in this country to preach what I preach. I pray for brothers in the country to our north who could face up to five years in jail for preaching this very same sermon today. Lord, I pray for wisdom and grace, perseverance. Lord, I pray that you would instruct our hearts. Thank you again for the freedom in our country to gather, to assemble, and to have this time of worship. And Lord, I pray that if there are someone here that needs to put their faith and trust in you, they would do so immediately today. Now is the time of salvation. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.